This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, where do you stand on e-scooters? I mean, you, you stand on the little platform bit, but they are spreading across the country. Loads of towns and cities are starting to trial them. But are they the future of transport or are they a silent menace? I was a bit in another sort of Blue Peter episode after the space centrifuge business. Uh, I've been out to try out uh, using an e-scooter didn't really like it uh, but we'll also find out about the uh, what, whether or not they are legal and whether or not they really are the future of transport so that's coming up in our big thing on the podcast but first it's our columnist panel it must be tuesday it must be finkelfitch it's daniel finkstein and david Ivanovich. meet the cerberus of columnists the janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, they're back. Two of our favourite columnists on a Tuesday morning. It's Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And David Aronovich. Morning, David. Good morning. Matt Chorley with GoDaddy. I mean, it sounds like something out of the village people. I think you'll find they are an excellent website for building your own website quickly and easily. Uh, I, I must I must try them this afternoon. Uh, do you know what? I was genuinely having a go yesterday afternoon. It is incredibly, it's almost dangerously easy to create a website. Maybe we need a whole, maybe can we buy Finkelvich.com? We could have a, we could set up websites for everyone on, uh, on Times Radio. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Let's get back to business. Let's talk about Keir Starmer. Or, I mean, I, I slightly unkindly described him as a poor man's Ed Davey, all the knighthood, none of the hope, in my column on Saturday. Um, but the um, charisma, does charisma matter in, in politics? Uh, uh, let's start with you first, Danny. It does, but I don't think that's really the problem. 
uh, or Keir Starmer. I, I think he's actually quite an attractive personality, and there's quite a lot of reason to think that uh, the electorate, unlike, we'd say, William Hagen, to a certain extent with Ed Miliband, they haven't dismissed him entirely. Uh, the problem I think he's got is he can't make the major strategic choices. I think he's always had a problem uh, making choices in politics, and he's got a particular problem, uh, I think, with choosing between whether to go and fight the Red Wall seats move towards a more sort of nationally uh, nationalistic attitude uh, or to become a sort of globalist uh, liberal, which I think is where the future of the Labour Party lies. And the electorate can pick up that feeling that he hasn't made up his mind. And I suppose that's essentially the problem, isn't it, David? That it's not about him necessarily making up his mind. People can tell if you just don't believe something. If he <laughs> is a globalist liberal, that's fine. He can make the case. But it, the, people can spot someone trying to make up their mind and trying to work out what's the right thing to do electorally. Well, I have to admit, I suggested this topic rather uh, facetiously because there was poor old Keir Starmer losing uh, the Hart Liberal by-election and being accused of a lack of charisma. And then the next by-election is won by Sir Ed Davey. And then you think, well, maybe charisma isn't quite the issue. Here. <laughs> because I don't think anybody, I mean, even in his own party, thinks that, you know, Ed Davey is, you know, I can't think, kind of the George Clooney of politics. Um, and, so on. And, and, and it emphasises the point that Danny makes, which is we reach for these kind of notions, like the king's wicked advisers. You know, it's not the king, but it's their advisers. It's not this, it's lack of charisma. When what we're actually talking about is um, uh, exactly as Danny says, a kind of matter of stance. Labour is caught at the moment betwixt and between and finds it very... It, it, it's almost as if it hasn't quite managed to work out what its analysis of the new political demography of Britain is, what it's likely to be in two or three years' time, and therefore what it's kind of most... What the pitch which most goes with its sense of how the world should be and what the electorate might think the world should be is going to be in three or four years time i would broadly concur with what danny says which is in the end i do think the labor is going to have to say everybody will benefit if we are more internationalists if we are more worked in uh, with the world if we are able to compete better and to cooperate better I can't remember if I've told this Ed Davies story before, but at a previous newspaper, not at the Times, but a previous newspaper, um, we were uh, at a Lib Dem party conference. We had a meeting, and there was me and a couple of the political reporters and the editor, on a barge in Birmingham, which was just sort of swaying very slowly. Everyone was a bit tired and hungover too. And just a, a meeting with Ed Davey, it just went on and on and on uh, without any great conclusion. I think by the end he said all of that is in the public domain. Uh, rendering the entire meeting essentially pointless. And forevermore, <laughs> forevermore, at the other newspaper I worked at, the, the Independent on Sunday, uh, it was known at any meeting that had gone on too long had entered Ed Davey time. Uh, and it was time to, <laughs> it was time to wind the meeting up. Uh, uh, but anyway, there we are. Um, uh, Danny, do you think part of the problem is that... Because um, actually Keir Starmer still st talks a bit like um, Davey there. He talks about having this sort of thinking out loud about his, his assessment of the left's place in uh, 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 liberal democracy in the 21st century. While over there you've got Boris Johnson saying, do you want a bridge? We can have a bridge. We can build you, you know, we'll give you a roundabout. Do you want some more money? We'll do this. Do you want a hospital? It's a policeman. Yeah. Uh, while um, Keir Starmer is sort of having this sort of, just just sort of uh, intellectualising, you know, he's talking about Labour's lost mm. contact with work, with the work, the, the 
northern working class and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we need to rebuild the connection and trust. And Boris doesn't really well, no, uh, need to worry about connection and trust. We just not offer people things. Well, uh, my view is that um, there's nothing that wrong with a kind of quiet intellectual approach if that's the sort of voter you're going after. And Keir Starmer can't decide whether he is or he isn't. But if you look all over the world, what's happening is a rotation of politics in which conservative parties are gradually becoming parties dominated by voters who don't have degrees and left parties are dominated by voters who do have them. Uh, There's nothing wrong with the way that he's talking, but he's not uh, decided who he's talking to, and that's uh, <laughs> that's his biggest problem. Uh, so I I I do think that Keir Starmer has a problem of choosing. And at the time when he joined Jeremy Corbyn's uh, shadow cabinet, I thought that was kind of quite a smart political manoeuvre. It put him in the game to be leader after Corbyn left, uh, without having to sign up to everything that Corbyn stood for. And I'm now much more inclined to the fact that he joined it because he finds it hard to make political choices and make uh, political decisions. Uh, by the way, Boris Johnson does too, uh, but he manages to encompass everything, uh, whereas uh, Keir Starmer at the moment is left uh, encompassing nothing. That's a but that's a problem. Uh, although in the end, uh, when you encompass everything, it can collapse. Yeah, that's what's the issue. Well, instead of getting uh, MPs in, in and out of uh, cabinets and shadow cabinets, is uh, Dominic Cummings floated this idea uh, yesterday, and he's never went. He might, he might still be going for all that we know, answering questions online, if, but only if you pay him. Uh, one of the things he talked about was <laughs> that um, uh, if you could pick executive figures from outside Parliament, that would improve things. Uh, basically, uh, you could either make them officials or put them in lords as put them in the lords as ministers. And he was basically saying you, you shouldn't be. Uh, just choosing people who run the country from the pool of people who managed to become an MP, once again having a swipe at Matt Hancock, but instead uh, using people from the House of Lords. Uh, David, do you know any smart people in the House of Lords who'd be good at running the country? Uh, actually, I, I do. I, I, I know one particularly well, and I, I actually have always thought he should be a minister, but I'm not exactly sure how he can carry on being a columnist and uh, and be a minister. And I'm talking, of course, about Charles Moore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Danny, do you want to defend yourself? Should you be should you be given a job in government? You know that that idea of Dominic Cummings is was one of those ones where when you when you realise that's the logical implication of the argument you're putting, you go back to the beginning of the argument and start to question the premises because uh, <laughs> you can't possibly end up there in a situation in a, of, in which a parliamentary democracy is run uh, by people who aren't parliamentarians or in which you do away with parliamentary democracy in the incorrect assumption that you'll then get a lot better people um, running, making executive decisions and being uh, accountable and you won't. Um, so I actually have paid uh, for Dominic Cummings's uh, Substack, and I find it very intellectually um, stimulating. I think he says a lot of extremely interesting things, provided one accepts and understands that he fundamentally believes in a politics without politicians in it, uh, which, is, <laughs> which, is, which is a very dangerous, which is either yeah. ludicrous or dangerous. Um, it, and, uh, and I'm able to, I, I think... Um, you have to deal with what Dominic Cummings says without getting distracted by the fact that he thinks everybody, not that's not true that he thinks everybody else is an idiot, but he thinks so many other people he deals with are idiots and he can't think of any way of running a political system other than to install mm. a few data scientists that he met. Um, but I do think it's still valuable 
nonetheless. But it is, it, it is a recurrent fantasy, this, isn't it? That you can somehow take the politics out of politics and that you can, <laughs> uh, and that you can kind of create a situation whereby the best minds, um, and they're always minds contiguous to your own, uh, can rub along together, etc., and sort things out. And in a way, there's a lot to be said for the idea that government can make use of, of talent. And there's an, a recurrent problem as well, which is because, and I know this is going to get listeners really fed up, because we pay MPs re- a relatively low amount, you've either made your money before you become an MP, or if you are interested in what is called a kind of, you know, a, a good middle class and upper middle class stand of life for your family, you won't become an MP or you won't stay an MP. And that's a, and that's a genuine difficulty too, which we're very re- reluctant to confront. So in some ways, what Dominic Cummings has suggested is sort of is to try and get round the barriers which we ourselves have imposed towards yeah. quite a lot of talent actually going into and staying yeah. in politics. I think it's a more fundamental issue than that. He he thinks that the only judge judgment to be made about an action by government is its effectiveness and efficiency. And he's very angry that it isn't effective and efficient. And I understand that. But he misses out the fact that it also has to enjoy, that laws also have to enjoy consent, that they have yeah. to be transparently made, that um, the public has to not abuse its power. Um, and all of these things are overheads. They make things less efficient. And he doesn't accept that that's a constraint it's actually an extraordinary sort of hole in his model of how government should be done it it isn't all like that the moon landing is not actually a particularly good um, example because it only involves you know one big um, major project under executive control of the president it's not a typical action so I you know I had this last week with his procurement views he doesn't leave any room in procurement for appearances uh, as if because he thinks that's irrelevant they're what he calls Potemkin um, measures to persuade the public that they're transparent but they they matter they do matter and he's actually just wrong about that yeah, no, you make a you make an important point here, which is just how much politics is about persuasion. Now, the problem with having to persuade people of things in order to kind of get your way is there's the area of compromise. There's the area whereby you don't ever get anything at the perfective level that you would want because you have to dial it down a bit in order to kind of get it through. If you if you look at what's happening to um, uh, has to happen in the American system for Joe Biden to get anything substantial done, you really see how vital the question of persuasion is at every at, at every level and of course it's immensely irritating if you think you've got the right ideas you know you've got the right ideas and you find them it's like it's like making a a, a television program with, with with commissioning editors and uh, and commissioners and producers so all with different ideas you come in with this idea of what the drama is and what you end up with is nothing like what you went into the room with <laughs> You sound like you're speaking from experience there, David. Now, uh, just, I quite, am. just finally, on the list of things to talk about, I'm not sure who suggested this, but UFOs. There's this report coming out from the Pentagon de- detailing what the US government knows about what it calls unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, yeah. Which of you is a believer? I, well, I, 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 put the, I put this down because I know Dan is a considerable expert on this, and I'm always, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm always very keen to hear. It, w- what you don't know, uh, Matt, is that Danny has a kind of tiny little kind of conspiracy conspiracist element to it which is he quite he rather likes these stories and so i wanted to find out what he makes of i know what i make of this ufo thing but i wanted to find out what danny makes of it sorry danny no 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 
any anything that involves uh, extraterrestrial beings or uh, you know dragon and the Game of Thrones, I turned off that. I, I really like the Last Kingdom, but at the moment it has some sort of metaphysical uh, kind of uh, fictional animals involved in it. I, yeah. I, I <laughs> turn off. I, I quite like. Uh, I, I, I've. Uh, at a, at a point before David persuaded me how dangerous they were, I was quite attracted to the odd conspiracy. And I did for quite a long time uh, buy into the conspiracy theory that John F. Kennedy was uh, was murdered either by the mafia or the CIA. Uh, not the CIA so much, but the the, the mafia. Uh, and uh, now I realise that's absurd. But... Uh, but I, David's not wrong in thinking I was quite attracted by that. And and for all the interesting reasons that you think, you know, you kind of think you've got an extra level of knowledge that other people don't have. It doesn't reflect very well on me as a person, I think, uh, the fact that I was taken <laughs> by those. But hopefully it reflects better on me that I've learnt my lesson. <laughs> but uh, more to the point, so here's the, so here's the thing which really fascinates me about this. So what you've got is this report, which essentially details um, their thinking and quite a lot of the experiences they've had with the with, with with these sorts of encounters. And here's the thing that I want to know from people who think that this does show that there are indeed alien encounters: Why don't we spot any of them on their way to Earth? Why do we only see them once they're in the atmosphere? That's what I wonder. Why has nobody from the space station seen one whizzing past? Because we had people up there for smash, ages David. and ages and ages. You must have seen the people who made Smash. I uh, need <laughs> <laughs> <Our new> people. <laughs> the mashed potato people. The mashed potato people are running the world. Um, well, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground there, from Keir Starmer to mashed potato. Daniel Finkstein and David Iwanovich there. And you can, of course, read them both in The Times. You can get more of The Times in the Sunday Times for less than £1 a day. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, e-scooters. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, where do you stand on e-scooters? They're popping up everywhere. They're being trialled in over 30 areas in the UK. Some say they're the future of green urban travel, whilst others say they're a disruptive fad, a silent menace that creep up with you, uh, creep up behind you on uh, the streets and pavements. Now, one of the areas where they've been tried is Bristol. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, I hosted the show from Bristol and spoke to Mayor Marvin Rees there, because uh, I'd seen, in fact, I was travelling in a taxi uh, through Bristol, and uh, I saw a couple of uh, blokes come bombing down a hill, and one of them very nearly hit the side of the taxi, because he was going so fast on his e-scooter, before he basically just tumbled onto the floor. So I spoke to the uh, Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees, who told me how successful, in fact, the rental scheme had been there. Very, very popular. I think the, um, I was up at the, the the factory the other day where we keep all the, the where they keep the Bristol scooters. We started off with um, about a hundred. I think we're up around two thousand on wow. the streets. Now. I mean, they yeah. are everywhere. Oh, massively, very, very popular. And do you, and, do you uh, use them? Yeah, I caught one the other day, and I t- this is this is exactly what it should be doing. I was I had an appointment. I live in Eastern, and my appointment was up in Clifton. Um, I needed to get there. I had about half an hour. Um, because I was a bit late and I could have taken the car but I thought actually I could take a scooter so I ran out got a scooter scooted up to um, Clifton it's perfect and it was a really nice way to travel too that was Marvin Reese speaking to me a couple of weeks ago in Bristol. Uh, this week, 20-year-old Shakur Amoy Pinnock from Wolverhampton became the second person to die in an e-scooter crash, bringing home the reality that they, although they can look quite fun and uh, convenient, uh, the dangers of being out on the road on them are real. Uh, well, in a moment, you'll be able to hear what happened when I hit the road uh, and test rode uh, one of the e-scooters uh, are being trialled in London. First, though, let's speak to Nick Lies, the head of roads policy at the RAC to try and clear up what exactly is the legal status of these things. Hi, Nick. Good morning, Matt. Uh, so, first of all, there were sort of two things going on here, isn't there? Some people buying sort of whizzy gadgets, uh, you can buy them online uh, uh, and you own your own. But then separately, there were sort of these these rental schemes popping up where you uh, turn up your phone, you beep a code, you pay on your credit card and you can zip off, go where you want to go and then leave them uh, for someone else to use. What are the legal status of those two different types of e-scooters? Well, firstly, if you buy an uh, e-scooter privately, um, the thing that you must remember is that you cannot use those on public roads or on pavements. There are only permitted to be used on private land and that's only if you have the landowner's permission so um, if you are going to the shop and you are buying one uh, then you are not allowed to use it on the road very very simple um, with the um, with these trial schemes now um, the key thing here is that many of these trial schemes will have uh, insurance that's provided by the operators uh, and uh, you should be uh, qualified i.e. you should have a license to, to uh, use one of those um, uh, and uh, those will only be allowed to be used within the geographical area of which the trial is taking place. Uh, you say that you're, you're not supposed to use them, uh, or you're, you're, it's illegal to use them on the road or the pavement. They're everywhere, aren't they? I was walking, I was out and about in uh, London one afternoon last week, and people were you know crossing footbridges on them all along the South Bank, all along the road. Clearly, private scooters. What what? It, What's going on there? Are the police turning a blind eye? Is it uh, th- th- what's the punishment that you'd face if you were caught? Well, I think in terms of what's going on, I, I think there is a, a lot of public. Um, uh, 
how can I put this? I don't think the public are quite aware of what the what is legal and what is illegal when it comes to e-scooter use. I mean, uh, you know, e-scooters are quite fun to use. Um, they are uh, potentially something that is going to be a very good way to get around city centres in the future if if the government does proceed with full legalisation of them. But at the moment, if you do use a private e-scooter uh, and the police do crack down on it, and we have seen in some areas that the police are cracking down on their use, uh, you could get a fine, you could get points on your licence, and you could even have the uh, the private e-scooter that you're using impounded. So um, it's, it's very, very important that people uh, check out what is legal and what isn't. And obviously they are powered. I mean, the, the, um, certainly the ones in London are being limited to, I think, 12 miles an hour. Uh, but uh, So are they treated as a vehicle? If you are on one, you obviously don't need a licence at the moment uh, in the way that you would if you were on a motorbike. So is it, are they legally, if you are even using one of the sort of the higher ones, are you legally treated as like a, just a normal bicycle? Well, I, I think what's important to note is that the e-scooters are classified as a power, powered transporter, so they are pro- propelled mechanically by a motor, albeit an electric one. Um, electric scooters uh, will thus fall under the definition of a motor vehicle under the Road Traffic Act. Now, um, when it comes to the rental schemes, um, there are these are specifically designed to sort of get around that piece of legislation. So um, there are trials that are taking place um, and these as you said are, are taking place in about 30 uh, towns and cities up and down the country and we, we don't know what um, how, how successful, successful these have been but I think that generally speaking from a public point of view uh, people that live in these cities they are probably quite a nice way to get around um, but again just make sure that um, you are following the rules of what you should be doing you should not be riding these on pavements for example and it is recommended that you uh, wear a helmet and uh, some some form of high vis as well. Um, it's important to note that you know when you're using these scooters on roads uh, or in cycle lanes, for example, that it's it, you know the condition and maintenance of our local roads, for example, are not in great condition. So do take care on on these things because some of them do go up to fifteen point five miles an hour. Yeah, no, exactly right. Well, uh, thanks so much. For that there's Nick Lies, the head of roads policy at the RAC. As he was saying there, you do have to wear a helmet. So I put a helmet on when I went uh, um, out. But they are pretty nippy. Um, currently, e-scooter rental is being tried across several boroughs in London. So I went to have a go myself. I was joined by Duncan Robertson, who's the general manager at Dot UK, one of the e-scooter uh, companies um, rolling out these these rental uh, e-scooters. So this is how I got on. Okay, here we go then. First time, push off of the leg, then press the button. Oh, ah, there we are. <laughs> and there's a car and a taxi. I, I forgot I had to hold the button down. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry taxi drivers. Taxi drivers notoriously happy uh, to be held up by uh, novelty vehicles. Here we go, right, there's no traffic for a minute. Yeah. yeah. A little bit harder. Oh, oh, oh. oh that's that's uh, that's quite a bit faster than I was necessarily expecting. Oh, I'm on the old drain. Oh, there's a car coming up behind me. That's what I don't like. Cars passing and then me. Okay. Where are we going? Left after the crossing. Oh, so we're going left. Put me indicators on. Oh, 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 oh. round the bend. This. Oh, I'm not sure about this. There's a car there. Oh, oh, where's Duncan gone? Oh, oh, mind the bus. Oh, and the van. Ah, there's a car here. It's a Porsche trying to park now, which is slightly 
frustrating. What are they doing? Please don't run me over. There we are. Thank you. Thanking you. Thanking you. There we are. All right, now we're turning. Oh, parking up. Parking up. Here we go then. Let's park up. And we'll have a chat with uh, Duncan about how all this works. Oh, there we are. Break, 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 break. Get rid of my there we are. So helmet off. Parked up on the side of the road safely. Uh, so Duncan, what's the what's the score then? We've, so I've I've downloaded the app. I've got the thing. I've gone on my journey. Where do I leave it? Well, you have to leave it uh, in a parking bay uh, in London, and that's one of the critical things about how we really hope that this brand of uh, dockless micromobility will be a success in London. Um, instead of having vehicles being left everywhere, you have Which to Which I've seen in other places, indeed, scattered all over Indeed, places. and it was definitely, it's been a learning curve for the industry as a whole, uh, but we seem to be at a, an area, uh, we seem to have got to a place where we're kind of comfortable with what the city needs, what people need, and what riders need as well. And so, what, what, how much is that going to cost me, going you know, sort of around the block a couple of times like we just did? So then? at the moment, it's uh, £1 per unlock, and then it's 15 pence per minute. Um, but we've got various passes that are available, including ones that um, take out the need for the timed element. So you just pay for the unlock, so it's £1 per go, up to 30 minutes, then you don't have to worry about time at all. Um, most trips are kind of 15 to 20 minutes, so you can get a good distance when you need to do that. Now, I quite, on the, when there was nothing else on the road, it's mm. quite fun. I can feel like I'm, a bit like I'm on holiday or something. And then as soon as you've got, I mean, partly it's because London's so bad, so you've got cars coming at you from all directions, you do feel a, I felt like a bit exposed. How can you make sure that you're safe when you've got a bus coming one way, you know, uh, a van flinging its door open, and a couple of taxis, and suddenly you feel like it is basically just you standing on a thing, yeah. propelling you at those vehicles slightly faster than if you were just walking? I think um, very similar to cycling in, in London. Yeah, which I'd also wouldn't do. <laughs> a certain amount of getting used to. That said, you know, there's, there's a lot of segregated cycle lanes in London which you can ride a scooter in and we encourage you to ride a scooter in. Um, so really it's kind of getting to understand your route which is, uh, which is a key element as well. Is it green? Absolutely. So, um, when it's clearly not sort of churning out, no, <laughs> black smoke, like absolutely or whatever, but yeah, Ab absolutely not. Um, it is, it is green. So, um, it's obviously an electric vehicle. Um, we charge it using um, uh, uh, renewable energy. Um, so, all of our tariffs that we use are, are renewable, come from renewable sources. Um, our fleet will be, we use um, electric cargo bikes and we're transitioning over to an entire fleet of electric vans. So, even the operation is going to be completely green. Um, so yeah, we think it's a very, very uh, green way of getting around. Do you know where they are at all times? Ab ab are they sort of tracked? We know where they are at all times. They've got GPS uh, okay. in them. Um, that's what we use for the parking. That's what we use for the geofencing that we also apply. So there's certain areas of London where um, we've worked with the local authorities and they said, you know, X park, we don't want scooters to be going in there. So we put a no-go zone, for example. And if I tried to go in there, it would just stop? It would just stop. Yeah. Exactly. It, it won't throw you off. It will slow down nicely, but it will stop and yeah. it will let you know on the app that you've entered a no-go zone. Yeah. And then you have to turn around and go back out and then you can carry on your way. We also operate slow zones as well. A lot of boroughs have have put slow zones near schools, for example, so you know they absolutely minimise any potential conflict. Yeah. And you know when you go into a slow zone, the scooter slows down to eight miles an hour. Um, and so yeah, we've got what, this. What very can expensive. it do at full? Is it twelve? At full, it's twelve and a half. Okay. Um, the national speed limit for scooters at the moment, um, or for shared scooters at least, is uh, fifteen and a half, which is uh, aligned with a pedal assist electric bicycle. Okay. Um, but for the London trial, we recommended and we agreed with TfL that 12.5 was a, sen a, sensible, uh, a sensible speed. 
some people might be using this on to go to work or pop to the shops and stuff, but they could be just be, can you just use them for fun? Absolutely, you can use them for fun. One of the things that we're really excited about is that you know people are kind of effectively coming out of hibernation now. Um, they've been locked down for such a long time and, and, and people don't really know their city very well and certainly for the last year haven't been able to explore it. We've done some research recently that, that suggests that you know, a, a large number of people have never been to you know, see the Houses of Parliament or, or, or Buckingham Palace. So we've put these uh, dot spots around London which people can go and explore and just re-explore the city by getting there by, uh, by scooter. So yeah, really trying to get people out and really make the most of coming out of lockdown and enjoy the summer. And over the last couple of days, we've had lovely weather. Um, I'm sure the rain will come. It's Britain after all. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, trying to get people out and about uh, and exploring uh, London again. I'm glad I've been able to try one out, but we can't leave it here, can we? We've got to take no, it back. No, absolutely not. So, so uh, let's we... put our helmets back on and get back on and we'll take it back around to the parking area. Sounds good to me. Fantastic. Make sure there's nothing coming. Push. Accelerate. Oh, there's that uh, acceleration. Actually, oh, hang on. Where's Duncan gone? Oh, we shot around that corner. There we are. That's what I'm doing. Nine. Can I get it up to 12 miles an hour? There's 12. 12 and a half miles an hour. Oh, oh, no. Indicating the other way now. Indicating the other way now. Indicating. Oh, uh. Oh, ah, ah. especially over those bumps. Right, and then slow up and then hop off. And then away we go. And then uh, take it over, park it up, and now it's ready for someone else to use it. Perfect. Yeah, they're welcome to it, frankly. <laughs> uh, you've, been, you've got so many messages about this. Sam says they were a brilliant disruptor to help get people out of cars and decongest city centres. Perhaps if cities had better cycle infrastructure, they'd be more welcomed. Hopefully they can expedite a transition away from private car ownership in urban areas. Jordan says uh, all this just goes to show how behind we are in the, U- in the UK compared to our European neighbours that we're still having this debate. Lots of people saying they can use it abroad very successfully. Henry says here in Los Angeles, my impression is they, they largely replace walking. And they're not as eco-friendly as advertised because the wear and tear from use causes them to degrade so quickly they get decommissioned replaced in a matter of months. Although uh, Duncan, who I spoke to, uh, did... Um, uh, insist that actually they, they were much harder wearing than that. Uh, and then someone else, because uh, I posted a video on Twitter this morning, be doing it, and somebody else just replied saying, uh, uh, blimey, that looks, uh, God, that looks dangerous. It did feel a little bit dangerous. And you can watch that video on my Twitter right now. Right, so we're talking e-scooters here on Times Radio. Last month, Matthew Scott, the Police and Crime Commissioner for Kent, spoke to us and was critical of the rollout in his area and said that these rental schemes should be paused until safety co- concerns are addressed. Uh, I think the fact that the scooters are treated as electric vehicles, the ability, the ability that they have to uh, move very quickly with a combination of inconsiderate road users um, who are using these uh, means that we've got a situation where we've got uh, unregulated devices being used illegally uh, on our roads, causing risks for the rider and also other members of the public. I think the trials are causing mixed messages uh, and that's why I've called for the rollout to be paused. Here in Kent, we've got uh, one very small trial scheme in Canterbury where the manufacturer and the, the scheme um, promoter uh, have branded bikes. But the, the problem, sorry, branded scooters, but the problem is, is that outside of Canterbury, we've seen an explosion uh, of these, these devices being used illegally in other places. And that's what I think is causing part of the problem. As 
different areas introduce different schemes, like we've just seen one announced in London, which is going to be five boroughs. Uh, I think we've got a really mixed message going out that they seem to be okay in some areas and, and others not, uh, and that we need a big education campaign around e-scooters so people know when you're buying one, you're only supposed to be using it on private land, and that's the real problem, I think. Yeah, there are lots of safety concerns about this. So let's now speak to Lindsay Call, the local campaigns manager at the Royal National Institute for the for Blind People. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. Hello. And we've also got uh, Nick Freeman, otherwise known as Mr Loophole, a traffic lawyer, who is now petitioning the government uh, to uh, tackle the, the, the sort of registration of these uh, e-scooters. Hi, Nick. Good morning, Matt. Uh, first of all, what is it that you, you'd like the government to do when it comes to e-scooters? Well, I'd like them to impose an identification system similar to that um, that exists currently with motor cars and registration plates, so at any one time we know who's driving. So as, as your previous uh, uh, listener said, um, th- th- there are two different types. The majority of e-scooters are illegal. The only ones that are legal are, in fact, the ones that are on these pilot schemes that are being trialled across the country. But whether they be legal or illegal, we have no idea. Members of the public who witness thousands and thousands of uh, criminal offences committed on these e-scooters have no idea who's driving, so they're not able to report them. Um, If a car commits an offence, you've got a registration plate, you have a process whereby the person who is responsible for driving that car will be held to account. With e-scooters, there is nobody held to account, unless, of course, that person is involved in a very serious accident and and remains in situ at the time. So the, the starting point is we need to know at any one time, in a highly visible way, who is on the e-scooter. The so I'm not suggesting a name and address, I'm suggesting a, a sort of registration number that, that will be sent to the registered keeper or the rider so that we can identify, and that person is then responsible. If, if somebody receives um, what's called a Section 170 notice in a car and they don't comply, they get six points. And the, the same law applies to cars as it does to e-scooters. It's exactly the same law, but the law, the law for e-scooters is redundant because we simply don't know who's driving at any one time, so they're, they're very rarely held to account. And that's, that's the, the starting point. And another point I would make is, why are we selling illegal e-scooters? Why are retailers allowed to sell them? There's no warnings, there's no advice given. In my view at the moment, until the government gets a grip of this, I think all private sales of e-scooters should be outlawed so that the only e-scooters that we have on the roads are part of the trial period and that we should have huge police operations to seize these illegal e-scooters, remove them. It would very quickly get around that if you're on the street with an illegal e-scooter, it's going to cost you a lot of money because it's going to be confiscated. It will be impounded. It will end up costing you about £1,000 and you're going to get six points on your licence and people won't take the risk. But of course, we need a registration system in place for that really to happen effectively. Nick Freeman, thanks very much for that. Uh, Lindsay, uh, what's the the view? I've seen sort of various issues from different charities who've raised concerns about this. What are the particular concerns, uh, the way that these e-scooters might affect blind people? Because they often uh, they travel quite fast, they are on the pavement, and they are, they are quite hard to detect. So for blind and positive people, it can really affect their, their confidence, their uh, feeling of safety, their ability to, to kind of go outside and, and conduct their, their kind of their lives safely. So there are a number of things that we're asking for. So firstly, it's around that the issue of riding on pavements. Now, obviously, we've previously discussed that that's it's illegal to ride on the pavement. So we'd like to see the rules are on that properly enforced, so um, so it's so scooters aren't coming into conflict with pedestrians. We'd also like to see um, adequate infrastructure around parking. So ideally, um, off pavement parking. So um, as you experience when you're in London, where 
they have to properly park with scooter back into a parking bay um, and that they're not, they're not causing obstructions, they're not causing hazards. So we'd like that, to that's quite a, bit, quite a big thing, isn't it? People have been sending it's me this morning um, yeah. photos of them just sort of abandoned, you know, dumped anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, we've we've talked before about, uh, you know, whether it's A-boards or cafe chairs and that sort of thing. Uh, if you're um, a blind person or someone with limited sight, you're yeah. making a way along the pavement. You expect the pavement to be clear. And if you suddenly come across exactly. an abandoned uh, scooter, then that's that's a real problem, isn't it? It is. Parking is a huge problem. And certainly we've, we've witnessed that in the trials across the country. So I think um, that's that would, would, would absolutely like to see addressed. Uh, we'd also like to see infrastructure. So again, we, when you, were, you had that experience in London where there are there recycle ways where scooters can, can, can ride, we'd like to see sort of things like pelican crossings, defensible curbs, mm-hmm. so the pedestrians are, abs- are absolutely kept separate from, from the e-scooters and the vehicles. Um, kind of some research that we conducted recently showed that 96% of blind and partial sighted would want to get out and to walk independently. Um, and 78% is their main or only form of exercise. So if they are they are left on the pavement, they are written on the pavement, and they are they are causing a, a hazards that would affect the, the safety and confidence of blind and partially people and other vulnerable pedestrians as well. Lindsay Cole from the Royal National Institute for Blind People. Thanks very much for joining us. Finally, then, let's speak to Kerry McCarthy, Labour's Shadow Transport Minister, whose brief includes e-scooters. Uh, Kerry, you're also an MP in Bristol. Do you zip? Do you zip around Bristol on these things? I have had a go and I was with Marvin when we went to visit the, the factory and as he said in the clip from him, um, it's turned out to be really, really successful in Bristol. Apparently, um, take up is higher in Bristol than in any of the um, 18 other 18 places that um, Roy is running these pilots. So it's really been popular. And what I was most interested to hear was that there is evidence that quite a lot, you know, quite a high percentage of the people that are using them are using them instead of car journeys, because um, I think somebody said in one of the earlier clips that um, people mostly using them as a substitute, that somebody from L.A. said they were using them instead of walking, which means that it's not really, you know, adding to the, the green transport mix. But what we're increasingly seeing is people are factoring them into their daily commute. And um, which is good because it gets cars off the road. Yeah, and frankly, in LA, nobody walks anywhere, so it seems quite unlikely. Yeah, no, that that's, I didn't think they did. Yeah. And in <laughs> terms of um, where the government is on this, um, because it does seem a bit like we've got, you know, there's, there's a sort of a loophole essentially that if you own, if you buy one yourself online, that's illegal, but you can use one of these, uh, you know, trialed, um, uh, you know, rental schemes. What would the Labour Party like to see the government do to try and clear up what is, you know, because if they are. You know, people can use them on the way. There does seem like there's a lot of confusion around this, and where there's confusion, there's potentially, you know, um, threats to safety too. Yeah, so there's over 300,000 that have been privately bought. And although some people know they can't use them on the roads, other people don't. And I've tried to sort of say, well, either there's more of a responsibility on the retailers to, to make it clear to people and they shouldn't be selling them, um, then told, oh, it's a matter for the police. And the police are taking enforcement action. I think in Bristol, over 100 have been confiscated. Um, but it's not ideal. And the way this was meant to work, there was meant to be four pilot schemes run under the Future Transport Programme, and Bristol was going to be one of them. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.